Thank you for listening. My name is Rahul Sons and I am the host of the On Meaningful Work podcast. The aim of this podcast is an inquiry into why we work. Beyond the functional aspects, that is paying the bills and putting food on the table, can work be a source of meaning in our lives? This podcast will try to answer that question by speaking to individuals who have fought to make meaningful work a reality in their lives. To find out more, please log on to disruptivebusinessnetwork.com. To kick things off with this podcast, I could think of no better person than Chris. Chris has had an incredible career starting as a social worker. We talk about his career as a social worker, how his first venture in business failed, how he had to battle homelessness, and now his successful career as a digital producer and product manager. So thank you for listening and please enjoy this interview. Um, I, I think the reason why uh, you're number one is, I think for one thing, we have a bit of a history together. Very long history. Very long history. Um, you kind of know me, I know you. And I think you're someone that, in a way, typifies this podcast in that you started off one way, in, in one area, you had your struggles, you've kind of fought your demons, and here we are today. Yep. <laughs> uh, and I suppose the, the purpose of this episode one is um, really to get into your story. Yeah, right. And also, also really, it's about why this podcast is important to me. So maybe we could have a joint interview of sorts, if that works. Sounds good. Well, I'm, I've got some questions that I've been meaning to ask you for a while. <laughs> so now that I have you on the line, you know, um, we, can, we can delve into that. Excellent. Um, so this was first, like, what's, what's the genesis, genesis story of Chris Bartlett? Yeah, so I, um, I actually started out uh, studying theology. Wow, okay. Um, many, many years ago. Where are you from? Like, to take us back. You... Well, yeah, originally I started, uh, um, I was living in Melbourne um, growing up and um, yeah, I lived in the Dandenongs. So I don't know if you've looked at that region of Victoria, but it's mm. the hills. Um, it's very beautiful. It's a tourist area, but it's quite also close to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up up there. So I had a absolutely wonderful uh, childhood, mm-hmm. um, you know, with the... The playground across the road was the national national park, mm-hmm. so it was full of adventures. Um, yeah, so I grew up up there and uh, in Melbourne, and I uh, moved to Sydney when I was about nineteen. I had about two hundred dollars cash in my pocket and uh, no job, mm-hmm. and I just got in my car and uh, left. So uh, that's kind of you know there's these different kind of phases we go through in life. Um, you know, you have your early childhood, your mm. teen years, and then the young adult years. And I mm. spent the young adult years in Sydney. Wow. But now, obviously, I'm back in Melbourne. Um, yeah. And I'm one of those people who can actually weigh up on whether or not Sydney is better than Melbourne, because <laughs> I've lived in both for a fairly substantial amount of time. And, I'm, and it's definitely not, is it? Well, Sydney's beautiful, <laughs> but it's just not Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't lived in Sydney, but I've been there a few times, and yeah, it doesn't have the character of Melbourne, I would say. It's, uh, it's just not Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, so what about what, you, Raul? <laughs> what about me? What's, yeah, my, what's your Genesis story? Wow, so um, 
I'm from Mumbai. I was born in Mumbai. Yeah, right. Um, Mumbai in India, formerly yeah. known as Bombay. Yeah, right. I, um, yeah, I came to Australia when I was 17. Mm -hmm. I did a year 12 equivalency and then went into engineering. How long have you been in Australia now? 20 years. All right. Mm. You look a lot younger than you actually are. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and yeah, so after engineering, uh, took the first job that came my way mm -hmm. and really stuck with it for close to seven years. And that was uh, electronics engineering. Uh, my degree was in electronics engineering. Because we've only recently discovered this because <laughs> yeah. I'm obsessed with hardware um, yep. as a product developer and mm. after knowing each other for five years I realized that you're like the, the other part because mm. um, hardware is really hard, uh, I've been informed. Um, yeah. But I didn't know this until recently. Yep. But you didn't do that for very long. Mm. Um, no, no, well, in terms of, no, I, I did do it for close to seven years. This is the job. So the job was in project management in the telecommunications industry. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of that, I had this notion one day where I looked at my boss and I looked at my boss's boss, kind of went up the chain and just had this realization that I do not want to be doing that person's job in 10 to 15 years. You don't want to climb the chain of screams? Have you heard that expression? Haven't, but it, it the sounds guy, right. The guy yeah. at the top yells at the guy underneath him, mm. which yells at the guy underneath him, which yells at the guys underneath him. Yeah. And girls, of course. <laughs> like, and all the way down to the person who actually does the work, which is mm. about eight or nine layers of management deep, generally. Yeah. People who are actually producing. So I was somewhere in there. Yeah, right. And, and I didn't want to ascend. Mm -hmm. I didn't see myself doing a corporate management job in however long it took. Mm. So then that kind of set out a whole like, process of inquiry, I suppose. Like, the, the first thing I did was the most comfortable in, in my view, which was I went back to uni. I did a master's in international business. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I tried for a long time, close to a year, to, to get into management consulting. I was just applying for jobs every day. That didn't work out. Yeah. Um, so if you're a management consultant, I'm probably going to offend you right now. But that's probably a good thing, Raul, because mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot of theory, but not a lot of implementation. Yeah. And I think that was my world. My world was in theory, taking, in, in theory in that taking the, I suppose, the, the comfortable route. And the, like, this is what you do. You go to uni, you apply for a job, you get a job. Mm. And I was, and when the time came for me to change careers, I was applying those same processes that I was comfortable with, and it it wasn't working. So then, after about a, oh, close to a year of trying, I thought, screw it, I'm just going to go out and see what's out there. Um, that's when I, I started going to every meetup that came across, that even mildly inter interested yeah. interested me. So you're, you're kind of, um, you know, and the topic of this podcast being, you know, on meaningful work, mm. we've both had this early career mm. and then veered off into completely different careers yeah. um, based on, well, we, were, we, we didn't like what we were doing. Mm. Uh, 
So your kind of line of inquiry was very much, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to expose myself to as many different like events and different kind of, you know, gatherings and different ideas mm. that you possibly can. Exactly. And I think from that, uh, then I began to narrow down what really excited me, kind of what energized me. And it, it came down to the tech startup meetups at the time. This was mm. maybe about five years ago. Yeah. And the social enterprise sector here in Melbourne. Yeah. And that's what I fell into. And then I started uh, working for a common friend, Nick Byrne. Yep. Future guest on the podcast. <laughs> I love who, that guy. <laughs> uh, on his first startup. Uh, and that kind of got me into this process of design thinking, lean startup design. From that also came the Disruptive Business Network yep. that, this, that this podcast is part of. And, and that was around the time we met. That was close to the time we met, yeah. yeah. And then and then I suppose then one thing led to another, the Disruptive Business Network started growing. Uh, I started getting more consulting gigs. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. It's really expanded from there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love the events that you put on because they're, um, one, they're not boring. Mm. Um, and two, <laughs> they're actually very thoughtful um, mm. and intelligent. Um, and yeah, so I've really enjoyed being part of it um, over the years. Um, and thank you for having me today. Um, <laughs> no, absolutely. But let, let's hear your story. So you, so when I jumped in, you were, you did theology. Yeah. Well, we we mentioned that we both had different kind of yeah. careers in the early years, um, mm. and I actually started out in theology, a very adjacent um, kind of line of work to that is social work um, mm. because you meant to kind of practice what you preach. Mm -hmm. um, and so I worked for uh, the ISS team for what was called DOCS uh, in Sydney mm. um, from about 2008 to, or no, earlier, 2006 to 2009 slash mm 10. -hmm. Um, and the ISS team was intensive service support. So you get the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst youth mm -hmm. um, dealing with the uh, wicked problems that yeah. they have. Um, so I was thrown in that deep end mm. um, and I did that for a number of years, which was very, very different to wow. what I now do. But yeah. in reality, it laid the foundation for what I do now. Um, in what way? Well, so um, I'm a product manager or a product mm. developer. Um, I run a company that builds web and mobile apps. Uh, mm -hmm. And I guess all technology is only just a tool. Mm -hmm. um, it's more about the understanding of how people relate to those tools, which is really what's valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, and so social work being the perfect foundation. I didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, before I veered off into a career in technology, what's that, nine, ten years ago now, mm. um, is all about empathy mm. and understanding of people, but also problem solving and being solving the hardest problems to do with people. Mm -hmm. um, so I had no idea that the career that I was in in my early years was really a great foundation for where I would end up until I ended up there, um, which I don't know, did you experience that? Um, I think definitely in terms of doing engineering, what engineering taught me 
was, or rather what it gave me was this mindset of problem solving. Yeah. Um, and, and also I think being a uh, project, a project engineer, project manager in my previous job, that gave me certain tools to kind of navigate how a project is done from mm. start to finish. So yeah, and I think definitely gave me a, a basis of that I could go from. Um, so so just with your story, so being a social worker, yep. did you have rumblings that okay, this is meaning this is meaningful, but it's not me. It's not. It was meaningful. I loved it, yeah. right? And I'm actually still friends with a lot of the kids. Mm. Um, Ten years on, uh, what it was for me, and this was around. Around the time that the iPhone hit Australia, mm. um, I had worked with a, this one kid uh, for a couple of years, and I like I'd seen progress, mm. um, and he'd come from the worst. You know, I I, I don't want to go into stories of, you know, this is the worst stuff you could imagine, and mm. you see this growth in this one individual over mm. three years, mm. um, and I was like, it's too slow. Um, I it's too much time investment and I loved seeing that and you know we're still mates but I, I was like how would you scale that impact of being able to support and nurture people towards positive mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. um, so this was was it like a one-on-one -on -one relationship that you had with I had so I was a uh, youth worker which is a lot of one-on-one -on -one work and then I also worked across a whole bunch of um, different uh, residential care placements, which is 24-7 living with three to four kids, mm -hmm. 24 hours a day on your own in the uh, backwaters of Penrith um, in Sydney, which, you know, is an up-and-coming suburb now. Um, I mean, all of Sydney is. Anyway, um, yeah, so it was one-to-one, -one, but then one-to quite a few. Um, so I'd seen, seen that, that you can really make an impact on an individual's life. Mm -hmm but it takes time mm -hmm. and that's fine. But how do you maximize your time mm -hmm. in, I go, yes, utility, um, utils yeah. of, uh, you know, more people and creating more kind of positive change. And, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a whole philosophical discussion as well, because what is positive change? Yeah. Um, but at that point, I actually stumbled upon technology. Um, obviously I was using it you know, to mm -hmm. access the web, to stumble upon technology. Mm -hmm. um, but more the actual rudimentary uh, value proposition of what technology is, which is scale. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when you say you stumbled upon technology, uh, do you mean that's when you first started creating technology? Were, were you... No, I, I literally just... Uh, we, it was when I first started creating technology. I literally just had an idea. Um, and this is before the app boom um, revelation of, say, the last five years. Um, it's really picked up. But 10 years ago, I was like, with technology, mm. we could do this. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, I was, you know, was gobsmacked by it, uh, what the potential was of this blank canvas mm -hmm. that gave you unlimited reach and, you know, required very little resource to do. Um, so I, I literally had this crazy out there idea mm -hmm. um, about 10 years ago, um, which I'm still pursuing today. And <laughs> so, so, so when you had that, was it, would you say it was an aha moment or was it like a process that got you, that, that where you saw the potential of? 
I'm going to say it was an aha moment for mm -hmm. me, which I know that's not that common, but it was just something that clicked mm -hmm. um, for me. And, you know, it, I, I started an inquiry, but it came very quick, quickly to me where I was like, how would you solve this problem of I can help these one-on-one -on -one kids, mm -hmm. but at scale, I can't. So I started looking to what the options were and, mm -hmm. and the iPhone came out. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at what the iPhone was capable of and it clicked. Mm -hmm. uh, so from there it was, well, okay, how do we then do this? Mm -hmm. How do we build products? How do we build apps? How do we build technology? Um, mm -hmm. And I basically started pulling that thread, mm -hmm. um, which led to lots and lots of Google searching. Um, mm -hmm. I was lucky at the time to have uh, the middle of the nights in this refuge mm -hmm. uh, to research. And I basically figured out that it was computer code, mm -hmm. um, had no kind of, you know, background in it. And I was like, okay, well, what's the rudimentary code, which, you know, is kind of basic, it's called basic. Mm -hmm. So I started to learn basic and then I learned C um, in this refuge uh, in, wow. the so, so in Lethbridge, well, Lethbridge Park uh, in the middle of the night on my own. Um, and then I moved on to Python, mm -hmm. PHP, um, and then got into the web languages uh, yeah. That's incredible. So this was you by yourself in the middle of the night learning how to code? Well, I mean, there were drug dealers knocking on the door and, you know, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, yeah, me by myself in a refuge in Lethbridge Park mm -hmm. um, because I had, I had time. I was lucky that mm -hmm. I had time to do that sort of stuff. Um, but it was the inquiry. I, it clicked to me that technology was a way to actually achieve the goal which yeah. was to maximize my utils, my, mm -hmm. uh, my utility, yep. um, you know. And so I kept pulling at that thread and kept pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. And I think I stumbled across lynda.com at one point yep. and I racked mm -hmm. up something like 500 hours on lynda.com, mm -hmm. you know, in the very early days of that platform, just absorbing the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I did that for about a year in that refuge, mm -hmm. just learnt and learnt and learnt and learnt and learnt. Yeah, and I suppose, just a question on motivation, because I mean, I suppose we've all have had struggles with motivation and, mm -hmm. and say doing things, especially outside of work hours in your own time. In that year, what kept you motivated to get onto Linda and, and do X number of hours after, after a full day of work? I think uh, pr previous to that, I'd run a crazy, what's now called a side hustle. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a, a kind of a trade service based company. Mm -hmm. I'd done that for about six months and it had just completely blown up really big and then exploded mm -hmm. in my face. Mm -hmm. um, so I was at a complete endpoint in my kind of, you know, early years of my life where I was like, oh, wow, that's just kind of wiped me out mm -hmm. how do I so I actually didn't have an option mm -hmm. I was like I hadn't I actually don't have a degree mm -hmm. I've got a diploma of Christian ministry which mm -hmm. is surprisingly very valuable um, mm -hmm. from a way of thinking perspective but like mm -hmm. um, I, I had no options and there's this you know I don't want to be too corny but there's this great movie Gadiger have you seen Gadiger I have yeah and um, like you know he's this guy who's been kind of classed as this underling and this underdog um, versus this genetically modified superhuman mm -hmm. um, and their brothers, his brothers, you know, this genetically mm -hmm. modified superhuman and he's this, you know, 
person who's meant to die at 31, mm. except he's an overachiever. And there's this one scene where they, they, they're always competing, these two brothers. Mm. And the best way I can describe my motivation is this scene, is that they swim out into the ocean and they have this competition who can swim the furthest, mm-hmm. um, the farthest. Mm. Um, and so they swim and they swim and they swim and they swim. And the one who is the underdog beats him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the older brother you know, says to him, how are you doing this? Mm. Uh, and he says, well, I never saved anything for the swim back. Mm. Um, and that's an interesting position mm. to, or place to put yourself in mm-hmm. um, because you have eliminated your options mm-hmm. uh, and you only have the option of forward to the purpose. Yep. And so I didn't want to, I knew that it wasn't sustainable being a social worker long term. Mm-hmm. The um, job that I was in, which I was in for, I think, um, three or four years, um, was actually the turnover rate was three months. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't something that I could sustain long term. So I was like, what are my options? Yeah. And I just dove deeply down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. knowing that that was, I just had to keep going. Mm. And I did. It's kind of like, it's been said that one of the reasons the Allied invasion at Normandy was successful was that they came in from the sea, mm. so there was no retreat. They had to, they had to keep moving forward. Yeah, and I think that kind of ties into my next question. I think we're, we're both uh, Joseph Campbell fans in a way. Beyond, <laughs> <laughs> and I think a big and an important part of the journey is what or the hero's journey is what he calls the abyss or the belly of the whale and that is like yeah. failure so significant yeah. that it either kills you or you you come out reborn from it. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and this side hustle blowing up in your face sounds like that? It, was that it was, it was, I was completely wiped out, um, you know. Wiped out financially, emotionally? Everything, financially, emotionally, had, you know, people who died during that period like there was it was it was the end I remember being in the shower one time and you know going this this is emotionally this is it I'm dead that's it and I mean I was pretty dramatic for a 24 year old or 23 year old Um, and that expectation that I had around life prior to um, you know that business exploding in my face and all of the other things happening was, Could you explain what happened with that business? Or what? It was uh, it was a roofing installation company, um, which was backed by the government grant. So I learned very very quickly not to in business rely on third party platforms. Mm-hmm. So the government. So I never base anything you do on someone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, was basically an opportunity that came up because the government said, "Hey, we're going to give free roof roof insulation to everybody in Australia." So uh, me and a bunch of other guys went out and got qualified and started knocking on doors Mm -hmm. and I think we went from me and my brother knocking on doors to about 70k revenue a week or maybe a fortnight this is going back in you know the space of about six weeks Mm -hmm. and we kind of grew that and had teams of people installing and auditors so we were some of the good guys if you look into that but um then the government snapped their fingers and said we're not doing it anymore and um, at that point, I'd actually invested some of my own personal uh, fame and fortune, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it yeah, completely completely wiped me out mm-hmm. um, beyond mm-hmm. 
you know, and then I had to claw my way back. Mm. Um, and then I was in Melbourne doing this for a shorter period of time. So mm. I ended up back in the job in Sydney in this, you know, refuge in the middle of nowhere mm. um, with no options and just trying to hang on. So it's the abyss mm. or what I would call the death mm-hmm. is where your life as you know it dies. Mm. And this is the Joseph Campbell um, I suppose these stories that uh, he, he talks about, um, which is that we're all telling ourselves uh, the story of the hero. Mm-hmm. We all believe that we're the hero of the story. And it's not always true. Sometimes we're actually the villain in someone else's story and they're the hero. Um, but the hero's journey that we tell ourselves is uh, there's always a death in it or mm-hmm. a call into the abyss or into chaos itself. And I guess at that point in my life I had I was forced into a place that I never wanted to be mm-hmm. but that instant where you are placed into a circumstance that is beyond in that story um, the hero's journey mm-hmm. is actually the place of transformation mm-hmm. uh, and I think jo- Joseph Campbell I anybody listening I would suggest you look into his work mm-hmm. um, but it's the transformation that happens in chaos that's really the meaningful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've got safety or security or you're not in the abyss, mm-hmm. it's very hard to transform. Yeah, so in terms of clawing your way back, what was the first step? Because, because I know from our previous conversations that you were pretty wiped out. Yeah. And I don't know, if you want to talk about you were living under a bridge at one point <laughs> <laughs> you were homeless yeah yeah I was homeless mm-hmm. um, yeah there was a point where I lived under a bridge there was a point where I lived in a cave um, mm-hmm. what I guess the bottom um, where you hit the bottom the way back from the bottom is understanding where it is. Mm-hmm. So when you're living in a cave, uh, I mean, I was on the beach as well, so I didn't mention that, but I had an amazing view. Mm. Um, but yeah, you, I remember this one time where I, I had my, I parked my car. I'd been homeless for about, I don't know, four weeks, but I was living out of a car, so I don't know if that's really homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a cave, because the car was really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I uh, locked my keys uh, in the car with my wallet, but I had to go make a phone call because I was trying to... This is actually a little bit prior to getting back into social work because there's a transitional period there. Um, Yeah, so I I locked my key and I locked my shoes in the car and my wallet in the car and I was like, oh, I've got to make this phone call. So I went to a payphone to uh, like, you know, try and make a call. And I came back and my car had been towed. Uh, wow. And so I, and you know, at that point I didn't have a strong support network of people around me mm-hmm. uh, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't feel that I could call anybody. Um, but I remember I was walking through this suburb, Chatswood, and I had bare feet. And I'd been living out of my car, cleaning myself in this fish-like cleaning station. Um, and <laughs> And uh, I, I didn't have any money and I didn't have a phone. I had no one to contact. I had loose change to make a call, but I had nothing. 
There were, there were no networks, there was no support. And I remember thinking in that exact moment, like, is this the bottom? Like, mm. you know, I'm sure it's a lot worse for a lot of people, mm. um, you know, but in that moment, I realized that the bottom was okay. Like, I still had my faculty, I still had my health, I still had, you know, um, there were people I reached out to. I remember I reached out to a person and said, I, I need help. Mm. Um, and I think that was the first step mm. was saying I need help when you're kind of on the upside of you know yeah. that circumstance was that asking for help was that a bridge that you had to cross did that come easily to you or was it no no it doesn't come easily easily to me at all yeah. but it was definitely a bridge I had to cross yeah. but learning how to get help mm. um, and you don't always have to get help from a person there's lots of other options that individuals have but yeah I think a lot of people um, especially when you're younger, you, you, you wear a mask like everything's okay. Yeah. And oftentimes the, the persona that we're wearing is very different to the reality. Um, and so when you take that off and you say, hey, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a spot here, mm. that, you know, in that circumstance was the way up. I wouldn't say that's not tied to the motivation. Mm -hmm. I'd say that's a good starting point, which is to ask. And that's something you learn along the way uh, when you're actually running businesses, companies, building products, is that it is very much about inquiry mm -hmm. um, and asking people and saying, hey, do you know this person can, you know, uh, how can I help you? What, what do you need? It's, you know, you've got to learn to assess options and mm -hmm. find the information you need. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's... Not the motivation, but I guess that's probably the first step. Mm. And so while you're teaching yourself to code at that moment, did you see, did you see a place that you wanted to achieve? Did you see a mountaintop where learning to code could take you? I saw a potential. Yeah. So I saw, I saw computers and technology as a blank canvas. Mm -hmm. And I saw code as the art brush. And I was like, I can build anything I want. I can impact the world at scale in any, I can like literally paint the world, the real world with these tools. Um, and I think that gave me hope. Mm -hmm. And it was that ability to do that, which was a motivating force because mm -hmm you know, it can empower you hmm. um, to be able to actually cause a meaningful change. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, I, I, although I'm an engineer, I haven't learned to code. Yeah, right. I've but, met a lot of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose when learning to code, the progress is very measurable it's right in front of you so you you can see how well you're doing do, do you think that not in the beginning okay yep no. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a tip if you ever want to learn to code start with learning how to say hello well this is the basic entry point but to find that that was the basic entry point right like you know if you can get a computer to uh, echo back to you or display back to you hello world is generally the entry point for learning a language because you've got it to do something but understanding that that's the entry point like where you have no context. Mm -hmm. So 
learning and we've touched on it, we talk about this a lot, you and I, um, learning is exponential. Mm-hmm. So it, it compounds and it compounds and it compounds. And a lot of things don't make a lot of sense in the very beginning. So, you know, there was a good, in that period after the car, when I was in the refuge, um, there was a good eight or nine months when nothing made any sense to me. And I was just gathering little facts, factlets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it started to come together. So in that eight or nine months, that is, I suppose, a big stretch of time to go without seeing progress. Did you have, I suppose, mentors at that time or did you have people who kept you going or, or what? <laughs> I, um, yeah, so when I was in the refuge, I was also, this is after the car, um, I was living in a house as well. So I was between two places and I was in a house a couple of days a fortnight. Um, and the kid, like I was living with a family and the kid there was a 12 year old and he uh, had learnt Python. So he actually taught me Python. Uh, Amazing. So yeah, I like I didn't have the facility to go and get the answers. So I didn't know that I should go get somebody who was a mentor and you know ask the questions and just pursue it. Um, so I, by happenstance, like there was a kid there who knew Python, um, <laughs> and so I didn't know. I didn't. I had Google. I had Google and I had TextPad. Um, and I had a LAMP server, which I figured out how to set up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, yeah. And then I, it compounds. So you, you know, you learn basic and then you, you're like, okay, I, I think I understand something, but I don't really. And then you learn Python and then you learn, you know, so it, com- it compounds. So by the kind of eighth month of, you know, stumbling around in the dark, stuff had happened, but mm-hmm. it started to make sense. Yeah. So it was mostly just Google. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm thankful for the answers it gives. Mm. But that's about all I'm thankful for from Google. <laughs> and, and so then once things with code, with technology started to make sense, mm. uh, at the time you were still working as a social worker, mm-hmm. living in a refuge. Mm-hmm. How did you go about then forging a career yeah. in, in technology? Yeah. Um, I just, so I was like, I'm going to need to practice. Um, so I basically set aside every Sunday when I wasn't at the refuge as well. And I set myself a little, like, build this product. Um, you know, a calendar that is completely interactive. Um, or you know, what's another example? A, a chatbot or augmented reality browser. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah, like I built these things in 2010. Um, and now they're all, you know, buzzwords now. But like, I was like, okay, how do I, I'd, I'd give myself a challenge and then I would set aside one day to continually go and build a product um, and I'd just do it in a day. Um, and so I've got all these random things that I show, I still show people them because <laughs> I'm very proud of them. Mm. But basically that actually became the base of my portfolio because I'd show people. Mm. Uh, and that's another thing is that you've got to show people your work um, and they'd be like oh that's really good mm. I'm like is it like <laughs> no context of what was good or not yeah. um, and they were like you know can you, can you build this site and I'm like yeah I can build that like or so 
and you know, I'm, I'm learning all this stuff from scratch. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not stumbling into frameworks or <laughs> CMSs like WordPress or Drupal, which apparently would have been the easy way to do it. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of value in the hard way mm -hmm. over time. It's kind of like from first principles. That's right. And building from there. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So um, I basically just consistently built and pumped out different awesome things that I, I really wanted to do and showed people. Mm. And then they were like, okay, cool. Um, this took time, like, you know, I actually quit that job at the refuge mm. at the end of that 12 months and I didn't have another job. Mm. So I just quit. Yeah. And I said, I, I drew a line in the ground. I remember the day, it was the 11th of the 11th, 2011. Oh, yeah. Um, so 2010, I was there. Dating in for me. Yeah, I'm really, yeah. Mm. And <laughs> anyway, in, in that, and I basically started from there and uh, uh, over time I built random booking systems for different companies. Um, How did you go about finding clients? Well, when you're building a portfolio, like, and you're, I'm just showing my friends and family, most ventures, most products, most great opportunities start with friends and family. Um, and if you're doing something, you should show them because they'll give you great feedback uh, mm. and they'll tell you if it's terrible. Mm. Um, well, hopefully. And probably not your mum. Your mum will always tell you everything is great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the first work I got was just basically from showing friends. And then I took on way bigger projects than like I probably should have. Like, you know, a, a whole booking engine for a, you know, <laughs> activity site. Um, I built a social network at one point for bartenders, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, and they were they were kind of from scratch um, and when you do it that way you kind of get a really good understanding of the lay of the land um, and i built a 3d character creator uh, for dungeons and dragons that, that uh could 3d print the thing that you made in the browser so i just took on the hardest possible mm. challenges that i could and you start to build this portfolio of work and you get known for doing the hard person. So this person can solve wicked problems. Yeah. And wicked problem is an unsolvable problem. Yeah. And you know, you want a website, you go to this guy over here who can just, you know, do a really pretty one. Um, Actually, that reminds me of a quote from James Cameron. Yeah. The film director. He says something along the lines of I'm probably butchering it, but it's when you select a goal or you select what you want to build, he says aim really high so that even if you fail, yeah you fail above everyone else's successes. That's correct. So, so and I think it's, it's not so much taking on things you're comfortable with, it's really setting sights, okay, what am I uncomfortable with and, and then going for that. Yeah. You got the status quo, um, people adore comfort. Mm. And we're all trying to find out, you know, childhood or homeostasis, um, a place of peace. Mm. Um, but a place of peace is not necessarily, you're, what you're saying is spot on, is not necessarily right because everybody's leaning towards comfort. Mm. And so if you are comfortable in your job or comfortable in your career, you're not actually getting scarce knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, so user experience design mm -hmm. six years ago, was, um, you know, really, everybody's like, oh, I want to be a UX designer. Now everybody's a UX designer, like mm -hmm. everybody. Yep. And so the market's almost a commodity, like commoditization, Commodized. same yeah. with engine. So these, the people who risked in the beginning and tried mm -hmm. something, but 
you know, now it's a comfortable job that people want and they want to get paid really well and mm. all of these sorts of things. But there's so many people who want that comfort as well mm-hmm. that it brings the price down. But if you choose to forego comfort mm-hmm. in the short term, you start to move away from the status quo mm-hmm. and you move out into the darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the further out you move, the less people have actually been there. Mm-hmm. And that actually gives you scarce experience. Mm-hmm. And you look at basic economics as a model mm-hmm. is that things that are rare and scarce are valuable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, nobody wants to kind of sail into the storm, mm-hmm. but that's how you become an expert sailor. That's hundred percent agree. And I think, um, I think it's also taking stock of yourself mm. and really seeing not not so much what you're good at, but what you're mediocre at. Mm. And Scott Adams was the creator of Dilbert. He has this great quote where he says that there are two paths to success. There's the Michael Jordan route of 10,000 hours. Mm. Do that. You're the best. Focusing on one area. But there's also another way where you take stock of yourself find out what you're mediocre at and then find a way to combine your medio- mediocrities that's unique and then and then working on that. Mm. Like for him it was, he was an okay, he had an okay sense of humor and he was an okay artist, mm. nothing really special about his art but he managed to combine those two in a way that created Dilbert. Yeah. Which is one of the most syndicated comics in the world. Huh? Which is incredible, isn't it? Like mm. that these two random things that you're not great at mm. make you great at this one thing. Well, I, this reminds me of your journey when you said that you ventured out and you tried all of these different things. Did you mm. did you feel that you explored, say, different areas of different industries and the things that kind of resonated with you? What, how did that happen for you? Yeah, I think, I suppose for me, my, my version of you learning to code was really it was getting out of my shell mm. in terms of meeting people because that was I know I now I run the disruptive business network yeah but a few years ago I was don't tell oh, me you're a shy person because I won't believe you <laughs> I'm an incredibly shy person like, you really yeah you're like the least shy person I've ever met <laughs> that is an act in a way because it's really and it it came out of practice. It came from me going to these meetups. At the start, I was in the corner, the guy with the sweaty palms, mm. looking at his phone. Um, and then I just, I suppose, over time, got better at just approaching people. And I, I would never have, never have picked that. <laughs> did you have a Joseph Campbell moment? Like, did you have a belly of the whale, a death? Yeah. That's what, was, what was the jumping off point for you? Um, I mean, the jumping off point was this realization of I don't want to be where my boss's bosses were in 10 years. But yep. there's also a book I read, which is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Amazing book. And in that, uh, just to give a brief summary, so he's a Viennese psychiatrist who during the time of World War II was sent to Auschwitz because he was Jewish. And then during his time at Auschwitz, he, through his observations there, he came up with this branch of uh, psychology called logotherapy. Mm-hmm. 
which is based on meaning. Yeah. And what he observed there was really, it's a Nietzsche quote where as long as anyone has a why, they can endure almost any how. Mm -hmm. And I think after reading that book, I thought it was a scary in that I, I found I did not have a why mm. in terms of the work I was doing. Did you read that book, Finding Your Why? I did, but much, much <laughs> later on. Yep. <laughs> and um, so that really was the catalyst, mm. reading that book. Yeah, right. And, and it's, it's a book, it's kind of the most, it's the book I've gifted the most. I think I gave you a copy. You did give me a copy of that <laughs> book. And I read it and it was amazing. Um, yeah. Thank you. And, but in terms of a, a belly of the whale at this moment for me, it obviously it wasn't as drastic as yours. And it happened kind of recently in that it was a culmination of my of an inquiry that led to a questioning of my identity mm. and it came last year when we had a chat in that last year there was a time where I was broke yeah and I had to ask my mom for money just to pay rent and bills and yeah. and that felt been there mate don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah but but at the time it felt like an absolute I felt like an absolute failure there was a lot of shame involved mm because this is not what I signed up for. Mm -hmm. I'm at a certain age, I should be, I should be here, I'm not in terms of, in terms of finances. Mm. Um, and I think the, the failure was that I, I thought of myself as an entrepreneur, mm. but I, as I hadn't, in me, I hadn't built up the infrastructure of what an entrepreneur really is, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of lying to myself in a way. So I, from that, I had to really look at what is my identity. Mm. If so I'm, if that was removed from you, that I'm an entrepreneur mm. was removed for you, what did you have left? Yeah, and that was a scary question. Yeah. Like, what did I have left? It was just me, just me. And I suppose what, I, what was left was the person I was, say, 10 years ago, mm. being in a comfortable status, being um, I think, yeah, that was what I was afraid of in that when I set on this journey it was this is the impact I want to create mm. if you take away that identity I'm not an entrepreneur now I'm not going to achieve that yeah yeah and then what is my life worth and so it was kind of tied to this identity I created yeah. but at the same time I, in myself I wasn't doing the work yeah and so then it led to an inquiry, okay, what is the work and why am I broke? Yeah. And it was really that for one thing, my mindset was still, I still had an employee mindset and mm -hmm. I was still comfortable or I was still waiting for a paycheck. Yeah. It's that status quo. Yeah. And so what I had to do was, okay, 
as an entrepreneur, if I have to forge a new identity as an entrepreneur, these are the this is what I need to do. I need mm. to do things that I'm constantly not comfortable with. I have to, as a simple example, you know, cut down on Netflix and YouTube and really find out what DBN means. Yeah, reach the bottom. Hmm. Because you like when you go through these situations, you realize how little you actually need. Hmm. And then you, if you can find a place of peace at the bottom, yep. so powerful. Hmm. And, and yeah, I think eventually I did find that mm. because I think at the time I spoke to yourself and I spoke to a lot of other people who are, who are now established entrepreneurs mm. and 100% of them at a certain point had to borrow money. Mm. And so it made me feel good that I was... Do you mean uh, like everybody who takes venture capital? <laughs> <laughs> That's another conversation. <laughs> Um, so that was good in that it didn't make me feel mm. alone. Yeah. But but it was also a realization that internally I needed to do a lot of work. Yeah. Well, I think from an example, and we haven't actually talked about this since this last discussion. Mm. But you categorizing yourself as an entrepreneur mm. gave that word and categorization power over you. Yeah. Which has a whole bunch of, you know, affinities and predispositions and meanings attached to it that an entrepreneur is X, Y, Z. Mm. Um, and then when you die to that, when you kill your ego, mm. you realize that that no longer has power over you. So you are free to actually do what you need to do mm. to derive meaning. And that's the abyss. Mm. And you see so many young guys and girls and people these days who are entrepreneurials, mm. sort of thing. Um, and they're really great at selling themselves, but very few can actually deliver or build something of meaning. And what you went through, the death of that in your mind, mm. frees you. That's the transformation. Yeah. Did you find that? Absolutely, and I think there, there were two things. One, I I kind of realized that, yep, an entrepreneur is important, but I'm also me, I'm also Rahul. There's yeah. that identity there. I like Rahul way more than <laughs> ever, any person who's ever called themselves an entrepreneur to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, but there's also, it, it, it also made me realize that the impact I want to create with the work I want to do mm. means I have to do the work. That's right. And what that meant was you have to be uncomfortable. I have to be uncomfortable, and I have to constantly do things that I really don't want to do. That's right. And so it's so everybody wants. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, I no. run into this so often. Everybody wants this meaningful work, but nobody wants to do the actual work part of the meaningfulness. They just a lot of I see this all the time is um, they want the feel-good status or the feel-good emotion of it. But mm. it's hard, man. Like, and you know this. It's like there, there are things that you have to do to get to where you want to get to mm. that you don't want to do. Yep. So many things. Mm. Um, a lot of people want to feel good 
and also have the meaning. And I don't know if that's actually possible yeah. because the actual hard work, the things that you don't want to do that make you uncomfortable gives you the scarce experience mm. which positions you in a valuable space because few people are willing to do it. Because if think it was easy, then everyone would do it. That's true. And I think the reason why I wanted to call this podcast on meaningful work is that the word meaningful is there's a large distinction between meaning and happiness. Mm. I, think. I think meaning comes from if you look at mountain climbers, mm -hmm. why do mountain climbers keep climbing mountains? It's like a horrific thing to put yourself through. Mm. They're dealing, constantly dealing with frostbite and you know lack of oxygen and whatever they deal with. But I can only, I, I'm obviously not a mountain climber, but I can only imagine that Tony Clement? <laughs> getting to the peak and then looking out into the horizon, the feeling of that would vastly outweigh the feeling of the discomfort along the way. Self-actualization. Mm. That feeling, like the mountaintop feeling, is an understanding of who you are in the world. Um, you know, mm. and you set yourself a crazy goal. Mm. Um, and then all of this stuff happened along the way. Uh, and then you achieved that goal. And you, mm. in that moment, have a sense of who you are and what the world is in context of that goal. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's life, that's meaning, that's, that's the pursuit. Um, and you need another mountain to pursue because you wanna keep chasing the, the marrow mm. um, of life. Yeah, and I think this ties into a, another Viktor Frankl quote. And he says, what man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for some goal worthy of him. And, and I think that's what took me a long time to understand, was that the striving and struggling bit. Mm -hmm. I think also, I feel in my younger days, or even my 20s and 30s, I think I was quite entitled, mm -hmm. and I was used to a comfortable life. Yeah. And I think learning to be un uncomfortable was, like I've done a master's, this was like a PhD. It yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> That was the real education. Yeah, but that's experience. Mm. Like, because you're, when you feel it physically and emotionally and in your bones, right, and you're in the context of it, you didn't read it in a book, and mm. books are so incredibly valuable. Mm. Like, you know, if I had a superpower, it would be reading. Like, but if you, the PhD is having stood in the place, mm. right, of chaos, mm. and come through it and gained the context of the experience to which you take forward is, you mm. know, it is like a PhD. Um, I run into a bunch of management consultants uh, <laughs> who uh, have all the theory in the world and they can talk and they can swan about, mm. but they can't deliver. Yep. Um, sorry, sorry, management consultants out there, you lovely people. Um, yeah, and, it, and I, well, first I should also say that during this time, Another mutual friend was a big help to me, Leon Goletzis. Yeah, I love that guy. <laughs> Except he never so, returns my calls. Leon, return my calls, mate. 
too cool for school. Uh, but but and I think like you, I think at the time I thought I was the shit that I was. I didn't need anyone, mm. and really asking for help was a big bridge that I had to cross. It was similarly to making that call, mm. saying I'm I'm at the bottom here. But when you do that, you remove your ego and you can actually see clearly. Mm. Because before that, you're not seeing clearly. Yeah. So I think for you, for you now, mm. in your work, what, what makes you feel alive? Solving wicked problems. Um, yeah, I I need to keep chasing that problem that's unsolvable. Mm. Um, you know, I need the big mountain. Um, that's meaningful to me because it's not unsolvable, there is a solution. Every problem can be solved. Uh, that's probably the core motivator. Mm. I like it, I like the chaos. Mm. And you learn, I think, when you face, have you read that book, How to Fight a Hydra? I have. How good is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so you learn when you, when you face, and it refers to problems as dragons or hydra. Mm. So when you learn to fight a dragon or solve a problem, or mm. you, know, you, you get better, and then you basically start fighting bigger dragons, mm. and bigger dragons, and bigger dragons. I need to, yeah, the, the meaning that I, I derive is from fighting the impossible dragons. And I suppose along your journey, are there any other resources or books I suppose that, that didn't help you, say, in a technical way, but it helped you in a philosophical way or helped you change your mindset or... Yeah, so many. Like, you know, I'm like you. We, we, we read like two books a week, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> I guess... Um, So I'm a Christian, mm. right? Not in the traditional sense. I don't get along with most Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this book called The Other Wise Man, mm. uh, which is a, you know, this parable of um, you know, the three wise men. Um, but apparently there was actually a fourth. Mm. Uh, and it's a very short book. And it goes into depth about what actually happened to the fourth wise man. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you should read it. Like, yeah. um, it, it is very much about a lot of people will sit around in life and arrive at the destination it will be but then the fourth wise man mm. so that's one uh the other one was the fountainhead and we've talked a lot about this by Arn rand yes i've read that as well and this you know you go through that ego death are you living your life to please other people mm. all right so just so you know the products i build i build them for myself i don't actually build them for other people mm. <laughs> um but like are you living your life or are you doing your work just to please the people in the world around you? Are you the ultimate um, ex, you know, existentialist or are you an egoist? Mm. Um, the Fountainhead deals with the philosophical difference between a person who lives their life to please everybody around them mm-hmm. versus a person who lives their life to please themselves, mm. but not in a negative sense. The egoist is not always a bad thing. Yeah. And when I read that book, I realized that it's, a, it's okay to 
you know, work for yourself mm. in the sense that when you build a product or when you build a piece of, you don't have to always just try and make everybody, you know, mm. happy, mm. make yourself happy. Yeah, I think, um, although, so Ayn Rand is a controversial figure and I don't agree with her politically, but, but I, I did get a lot of value from the book, uh, especially with, say, Howard Rock, mm. uh, the main character, when things fail for him, like he didn't sell out. Instead, he went to the quarry yeah. and started breaking rocks till he could build himself back up again. That's right. And so, I, and I think that's a question I asked, or I continue to ask, is what is my quarry? Yeah. Am I willing to do anything to survive while I'm on this journey? Mm. If you're pursuing mm -hmm. what you deem to be meaningful, you could drive an Uber, you could sell pizzas, you yeah. could mm. sweep the streets, you could do anything, mm. right? Like, but most people aren't willing to do what they don't want to do. And you said this, mm. right? To pursue meaning because they're, they're ego, but it's all the same. Yeah. It's all income that's generated and mm. creates revenue in your life, which you can then invest most people don't probably i don't know that people think about that way mm. but it doesn't matter where you get the income from yeah it's and i think i'm i am although i kind of i've loved reading all my life but i am only recently reading literature seriously that's fiction and yeah. last year i started this book club the boo radley book club yeah which is about what can businesses learn from literature so much which, and and in, and I think in literature, there are these characters that are empty shells. Like in the Fountainhead, it was Peter Keating. Not Peter Keating. The was it Peter Keating? Peter Keating was the guy who people please, and then there was the newspaper yeah. owner who had all of the money in the world, but he had no soul. Yeah. So the, no, it was Peter, the the people pleaser, mm. who did architecture. But he just Surely, copied Howard Rock's work. Exactly. Yeah. But also just to please his mum, to make sure that he had a respectable life. But there's also the great Gatsby and Jay Gatsby. He's the man. Who built this a lot of wealth, but he did it for the wrong reasons. He did it to... Still the man. <laughs> <laughs> he did it to, to create this persona to please this woman. But in the great Gatsby, the tragic thing is at his funeral, no one showed up because they knew he was just a veneer. I, I see. I, I read the Gatsby from a different angle, hmm. right? Is that Jay Gatsby, being a man who, born, who was born into poverty, hmm. um, basically faked everything so he could get close to the one he loved. Hmm. And so I don't like you know. And if he's willing to sacrifice everything, put hmm. on this, but he didn't even go to the parties, man. Right. Hmm. So his public persona was this, you know, person you know, out there that everybody thought, oh, the great Gatsby, hmm. but he, he faked everything and his raw grit as an industrialist, yes, he was hmm. selling, you know, liquor, but he, he only did it all so that he could be with the one he loved. Yeah, and I think... Did he care about what the people said? No. Did he care that nobody showed up? His, well, um, he did Daisy care. in that, she is the, like, the worst human being, the girl <laughs> that runs off and chases dreams, like... But, but, but that's my point. He did it because, not intrinsically, but because he thought she would care for that. Yeah. And I think that's why... But she did care for that. That was the... And, and that's <laughs> the problem. We can argue about that. Yeah, but I, th I think the point is that 
the meaning you strive for has to come intrinsically mm. and what meaning means to you in your depths and if you do it for outwardly recognition or whatever I, I think that's mischaracterizing it's miss mm. you're channeling it the wrong way yes yeah. we can agree yeah. on that um, I guess what you're touching on there is that whatever if your motivation is for people to give you esteem or status or mm. for you know ego or for all of those things you're not in control because you've already given power away to those things yeah and exactly. so the real source of power is the ability to lay it down mm. because if you if you have to have money and if you have to have status mm. and if you have to have the cars the clothes the women the men the all of those things you're already you've given yourself away to them um, mm. And, yeah, and I think Paul Graham, who's a, is the founder of Y Combinator, mm. kind of the accelerator that funded, you know, all, Everybody. The, all the big ones, from Airbnb to Reddit to Dropbox. Anyway, he, he wrote this essay called How to Do What You Love. Yeah. And in it, he says, the two things that hinder people is one, one is money. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the other is uh, prestige, what he calls prestige. Yep. And that's, and he, what he says is if you go after prestige, you don't really do what you love. Yeah. You do what you would love to love. Mm -hmm. and, and we wonder why everybody feels so meaningless. Yeah. Um, so just to... Good chat. Why not? I forgot we're doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would your advice be to someone who is... I, I, I go two routes. One is a someone who's beginning beginning their career. Yeah. And two is someone who's in a mid-career stalemate or a malaise, and they want something different. What would you? I would say, do the work. Hmm. There's I've never met a talented person hmm. who hasn't done the work. Um. You know, I'm, what, 10 years into my career in product development now. Mm. But that's, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. Yeah. Do the work because talent, you know, is hard work. Mm. And everybody out there, the Peter Kiddings of the world, the people who are people, please, will tell you how great they are mm. and they won't do the work. Mm. But the people who do the work, even your talent will grow. Second is is sail into the storm, mm. um, jump. Mm. So I quit that job, you know, to pursue what I've pursued with no safety security net because that forces you into a place. People are like, oh man, no security net. Mm. It forces you into a place that you, ca you, you, you have no options, you can't swim back. Mm. Like, so sail into the storm, jump. If you're gonna, if you want to pursue something, leave your job and do it mm. now. I, I challenge the I second one. You know, mm. accept any liability for your actions, but yeah. do it. <laughs> I challenge the second one only just through personal experience. What I found is, I think 
you need to have your bases covered. Yeah. So if say you need 3000 a month just to cover your rent, your food, your bills, mm -hmm. then find a way to get that 3000 a month even if you have to to use the previous analogy, go to the quarry, do something that's mm -hmm. menial. Yeah. Do anything you need to do to find that $3,000 a month and the rest of the time work on your idea or work on your startup or work on your creative project or A challenge, a challenge. Okay. <laughs> um, no, 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 like, you know, not everybody's built for the full chaotic experience. Um, mm. I'd say that, that, that if, you know, depending where you, where you are in life, um, you know, but if you can't, if, if you need that, those things also own you. Hmm. I only say that because I think personally, what I went through was that when I was constantly thinking of where's, where's rent going to come from, where, where's the bills going to come from, that took a cognitive effort mm -hmm. that would have been better spent thinking about the business. And if I had X dollars amount, X dollars coming in, mm. that would have freed up some cognition that could have been better spent. Yeah, yeah, I hear, I hear. Mm. I guess when you're in a situation where you don't have an option, mm. you're forced to solve problems. Mm. So, so if you that, limit your options hmm. and have the only option is to solve the problem, mm -hmm. you can't you can't stay there forever, hmm. right? But it, if it, you know, this is um, you're 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 actually building up. So everything's learned, including problem solving. Hmm. And so, if you're forced to solve problems because you have to solve them hmm. for a time, you don't want to stay in a survival space forever. Mm -hmm. You actually are building muscle in problem solving, which is applies to everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, anyway, it's a whole, whole, whole discussion in itself, I yeah. think, that one. I, I, I think there's definitely truth to that because personally, what I also tend to adapt to really quickly is, is being comfortable. Mm -hmm. And what I've got to be constantly conscious of is being too comfortable with the minimal wage that's coming coming in that mm. would prevent me from getting out there and trying to solve problems and trying to exceed that. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, it, maybe it's a balance, but really, business, product development, innovation is really about solving problems. So the better you are at solving problems, mm. the more likely you are to position yourself for wins. Mm. Um, so. You know, I, I, I would say, and that's my experience, I was forced into a situation, mm. um, but it worked out for me. Yep. Um, and because of that situation, it gave me mm. problem solving skills. And you know, I'm still learning and growing in that. But. Okay. Um, final question. Mm -hmm. The title of this podcast is On Meaningful Work. Mm -hmm. What does the term meaningful work mean to you? I guess it means movement towards good mm -hmm. so that your actions 
are moving towards good which could be for yourself or it could be for other people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think meaning itself is going to be different for each and every person who listens to this. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was the greater movement towards good for me and for all those around me. Mm -hmm. And so the more I can scale that, the better. Mm -hmm. What about you? What does meaningful work mean to me? Yeah. Um, I think for me, because of my past experience, I feel that everybody should be in work that they find meaningful. And and that I think that's what DBN hopes to accomplish through no matter what events mm -hmm. I run, whether it's debates or whatever, that's the overarching goal. Um, but I think w for me, meaning is really about thinking about that. I think firstly, it's taking stock of your experiences, it's taking stock of your life, it's mm -hmm. taking stock of your formative experiences who had influence on you. Mm -hmm. And then looking at those things and looking at, okay, this is who I am. Mm. And how can I create value for the world based on that? And I think it doesn't come from skill so much. Mm. It comes from your values and it comes and from that it comes from your grit and persistence mm -hmm. um, and so for me meaningful work is knowing who you are from that knowing what you're good at and from that knowing how to create value for the world it's a good definition <laughs> mate Thank you so much for doing this. No, thanks for uh, spending the time. Episode number one. <laughs> <laughs> On meaningful work. On meaningful work. Uh, I really appreciate it. And not only do I appreciate you doing the podcast, but you are one of the few people who really helped me along my journey. So You too. And I'm really grateful for that. Find people who will do the journey with you. Mm. Good people. Yeah, and like, like they say, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So cut the bad ones out like cancer. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I think we better leave it there. No Thanks, worries. mate. Thanks, Raul. Also, be sure to check out our website, disruptivebusinessnetwork.com for all the amazing events we have coming up. Don't forget that we do have a monthly book giveaway to all our new newsletter subscribers. And again, thank you so much for listening. This is Rahul Sohans. Until the next episode. And lastly, this podcast was brought to you by Dan Scahill on the buttons and with music by Vashti Silva. So thank you to the both of them.